Now, would you turn uh, in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse uh, 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see uh, them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, uh, and shall take nothing for his toil that he must carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what, is, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness and, uh, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own word. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. I want money. Your love gives me such a thrill, but your love doesn't pay my bills. I need money. That's what I want. Give me money. That's what I want. Is that true? Are diamonds really a girl's best friend? Well, the girls in Abba said it was. I work all night, I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay, and it's sad, and still there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too bad. In my dreams I have a plan. If I got me a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. I'd fool around and have a ball. Money, money, money. Must be funny in a rich man's world. Money, money, money. Always sunny in a rich man's world. That's what people think, that it's always sunny in a rich man's world. Pink Floyd, money, get away. You get a good job with more pay, you're okay. It's a gas, grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. New car, caviar, four-star, daydream. Think I'll buy me a football team. And sometimes we do daydream. Better job, winning the lottery, making a million, 
And we think that's the answer to life. Someone has said, money can buy you anything but happiness and is a passport to anywhere but heaven. And isn't that so true? We look to the wealthy again and again and we find them actually to be miserable and some of the most unhappy people on the face of the world. We only have to look at the bizarre life of hard hues to know that there is no necessary connection between money and happiness. Or John Paul Getty, one of the richest men in the world, uh, famous for his fortune, for his feuding with his family, and his fading, uh, his failing marriages. His biographer, Russell Miller, says of him, his life was a story of wealth that afforded him no joy. Five marriages, five divorces, two miserable deaths, an unforgiving, unrelenting miserableness. Uh, a legend of luxury, lust, and loneliness. Or you think of Cecil Rhodes, who played poker with diamonds, the uh, founder of Rhodesia, the benefactor for the Rhodes Scholarship, the man who exploited South Africa for his personal gain. Surely he was satisfied. Well, he once met the founder of the Salvation Army, General Booth, who asked him if he was happy, and he said, happy? I happy? What's happiness? And, and so we could continue from film stars to rock stars to TV personalities to uh, uh, social media influencers, successful, yes, but happy, no. And yet there is something in us that keeps telling us that money is the great panacea to all our problems. If only we were like somebody like Richard Branson, then we would be happy. And if we dream a little, we say, if only I had his wealth, then I would be happy. Well, that's a dangerous way to think. And Solomon tells us something about wealth and happiness uh, in this chapter. And he tells us that those two things aren't necessarily connected. Notice, first of all, the implications of wealth. Solomon himself was a wealthy man. He tells us four things about wealth and his experience of wealth uh, in this passage. First of all, he tells us that the more you have, the more you want. That wealth in itself increases your appetite but doesn't bring satisfaction. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Do you see what Solomon is saying? Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is constantly longing for more. The more you have, the more you want. All the possession of wealth seems to do is to create an appetite for more wealth. It's the famous saying of the Duchess of Windsor, one can never be too rich or too thin. You can never be too rich. The house is never big enough. The car is never new enough. The business has never expanded enough. The bank balance isn't big enough. You never have enough. And one of the Rockefellers was asked 
which million he enjoyed making the most, he replied, the next one. And so wealth never brings satisfaction because the more you have, the more you want. But Solomon goes on and he says, secondly, in verse 11, the more you have, the more popular you are. When goods increase, they increase to eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Solomon is saying that when you're wealthy, you're worth knowing. That people attach themselves to you. They gravitate to you, towards you because of your wealth. Like the prodigal son in the far country, when he was spending his inheritance... Uh, he had plenty of friends, but when he began to be in need and was reduced to poverty, no one wanted to know him. People attached themselves like leeches to the wealthy. And you see, that makes it so difficult for the wealthy person. Are people his friends because they like him, because they care for him, because they love him, or because of what they can get from him? The millionaire who marries a girl half his age, he's old enough not only to be her father, but her, her grandfather. Is she a gold digger or is she marrying for love? Crystal Harris at the age of 23 uh, married Hugh Hefner at the age of 83. 60 years difference between them. Did she marry for love? I don't think so. He saw it as an investment. That's what Solomon's saying here. The more you have, the more popular you are. Thirdly, he says, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The rich man, the wealthy man, often suffers from insomnia, says Solomon. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, he, uh, he, uh, sorry, the, the uh, full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He's worried about his investments, the interest rates, the exchange rates, the balance of payments, VAT, wages, tax. And so he can't get to sleep with worry. He suffers from ulcers, from migraines, from stress, from heart palpitations. He goes to bed so tense that he can't switch off. His mind is running in a thousand different directions, and sleep is important. God, sleep is God's remedy for the anxious mind. It allows the, the, the wires of our mind to cool down so that when the current is... Um, applied the next day, it, it can cope. But if you can't sleep, it's so difficult. So do you see the picture that Solomon is painting of the wealthy man? The more you have, the more you want, says Solomon. The more you have, the more popular you are, says Solomon. The more you have, the more you worry, says Solomon. And then to go back up the text a little bit, the more you have, the more you seem to take advantage of other people, the more you exploit other people. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, 
a king committed to cultivated flags, to cultivated fields, sorry. And these two verses are very hard to understand. It seems that Solomon is referring to the power structures in society. In society, there's always somebody above you, and there's always somebody on the take. The high official has somebody above him, and there are others even above that high official watching and taking advantage of. They're all on the take. They're all exploiting each other, using those below them to get rich. It's the original pyramid scheme. And who are the ones who are ultimately exploited and used? Well, it's the ones at the bottom of the heap who have nobody below them, the poor, because they're right at the bottom. Now, verse 9 is a very difficult verse to translate. It can be translated negatively or it can be translated uh, positively. And translations and commentators are divided. The ESV translates it positively, but this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. The NIV translates it negatively, and I think that's how it should be translated. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the field. So the picture is of a laborer, a person working out in the field, but it's those who are above him that benefit, and ultimately the king himself. The New Living Translation translates verse 9, even the king milks the land for a profit. And isn't that true? Here is the Amazon delivery driver working on minimum wage, working all the hours that God sends just to get enough to pay the bills and to keep the family together. And who benefits from his diligence and his hard work and his labor? Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, worth $200 billion. He has a $500 million yacht. It was constructed with two Uh, with three massive seals, which was a problem because it didn't allow his helicopter uh, to, to land on the yacht. So he built another yacht, a shadow yacht, 246 feet long with Uh, a crew of 45 just to allow the helicopter to land on that yacht so he can be transported then to the super yacht. And how has he done it? By exploiting the delivery driver who can barely keep his family together on minimum wage. And that's what money does. Those who have money have money because they uh, exploit those below them as they Uh, New Living Translation uh, says they milk the land. Do you see the picture that Solomon is painting of the wealthy man? The more you have, the more you want, says Solomon. The more you have, the more popular you are, says Solomon. But how do you know if that popularity is genuine? The more you have, the more you have to worry about. And the more you have, the more you are tempted to take advantage of other people. The picture is of a man who has everything materially, but he has no satisfaction, no peace. He is discontented. At the end of verse 10, Solomon says, this also is vanity. That's that word again that occurs over 80 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it doesn't just mean meaningless or empty. It means that it doesn't last. 
It's, it's the word that's used for, for breath or vapor, that it, it hangs in the air for a while and then it disappears. It's something insubstantial, something transitory. And wealth is like that. It, it's, there's no meaning, there's no substance, and it certainly doesn't last. These are the implications of wealth that the more you have, the more you want, the more you have, the more popular you are, the more you have, the more you have to worry about, and the more you have, the more you tend to take advantage of other people. The second thing I want you to notice this morning are the dangers in wealth, the dangers in wealth. Our reliance on wealth, Solomon tells us, is a very dangerous thing. There are many benefits in being wealthy, to be sure, and Solomon will list some of those in chapter 6, but he says in these verses, in 14 to 17, that to rely on wealth is a dangerous thing, and it's dangerous for two reasons, because it's unpredictable that wealth is no respecter of persons, and secondly, you can't take it with you when you die. First of all, it's of no respecter of persons. Look at verses 13 and 14. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept or hoarded or stored by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Some people treat money with great respect. They never had much as children, so they learned to count every penny. And so they spend little. They're thrifty. They don't indulge themselves. They scrimp and save, and and slowly that uh, hoard of money grows, and they increase their capital. But suddenly, overnight, their investment collapses or is eaten by inflation, and they have nothing left. I was talking to, or I was listening to uh, the radio, Radio 4, about a man who invested in uh, um, artists, and he bought a number of, of Rolf Harris's paintings, paid quite a substantial amount of money for them, until he was convicted of pedophilia. And then those paintings are, are worthless. And that's what Solomon's saying here. Wealth is no respecter of persons. It can go overnight so that a person has nothing in his hand to pass on to his son. He has nothing in his hand to pass to the next generation. It causes great hurt to its owner, leaving them bitter, frustrated, and penniless. That's the nature of wealth. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. And it doesn't matter if you're a wise and prudent investor, it can still disappear overnight. All it takes is a stock market crash or a house market crash, and your hoarded wealth is reduced to very little. Money is no respecter of persons, so you can't depend on it, says Solomon. And secondly, he reminds us that we can't take it with us. Look at verses 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil. 
that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Even if a man manages to hold on to his wealth, says Solomon, the day will come when he will die, and on that day he will be parted from his riches. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he will go. Death is the great leveler. It levels the rich and the poor. If you go out to the Moravian Cemetery uh, in Grace Hill, all the tombstones lie flat. None of them are perpendicular. They lie flat to show that death is the final and the ultimate leveler in life. When you think of it, it's obvious. You were born with nothing, not even a stitch of clothes, and you will die with nothing as well. All your earthly wealth, like some Egyptian pharaoh, can't be taken into a pyramid to follow you into the next world. As I said before, in the old Spanish proverb, that a shroud has no pockets. It can't happen. You came into this world with nothing, and you will leave this world with nothing. You may find comfort in your riches uh, in this life, but then life is so short. Man works hard all his days. He works night and day. He works seven days a week. He never takes a holiday. He never takes a break. He's looking forward to his retirement. He's saving for his retirement. When he retires, he's going to really enjoy life and he dies of a heart attack at 60. Don't rely on wealth. It may disappear. That's what Solomon's saying. And if it doesn't disappear in this life, it will certainly disappear in the next life. On that great day when you stand before God and the books are open and the judgment is commenced, you will not be able to plead your riches or your wealth. You'll not be able to use your money to influence the, the judge. You'll never be able to buy a place in heaven. No, you will stand before God naked without nothing to offer. If you're relying on your riches, it's a dangerous thing because the rich die too. So here we have the implications of wealth. And then we have the danger in wealth that it's no respecter of persons and we can't take it with us. Now, what, what is the bottom line here? What is Solomon telling us about riches and wealth? Well, he's saying this, that riches don't bring contentment and they don't bring satisfaction. Do you, do you get that? That riches don't satisfy. That's what he says in verse 17. Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Here's the picture of a wealthy man but he's frustrated. He never has enough, and he can never depend on his riches, and it leaves him bitter and angry. That's life without God. That's life lived under the sun. You want to leave God out of it, says Solomon. Okay, let me tell you what life is like when you leave God out of it. It's dark, it's frustrating, it's painful, and it's hard. You may be wealthy, but that doesn't guarantee that you will be happy. That's life under the sun. And the more you have, the worse it becomes. Don't think, says Solomon, money will solve your problems. 
It makes it worse. It intensifies the discontentment of life lived under the sun. Remember, that's the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. And I um, encourage you to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And every time you came across that phrase, under the sun, to underline it. Underline it in yellow, because that's a jaundiced view of life. That's what life is like with God left out. But every now and then, he brings God in. Go through Ecclesiastes again and circle the, the word God wherever it appears, and you see just what a difference God makes, how, how God changes our perspective in life, and he brings us then peace and contentment, that peace and contentment that we so desperately uh, are looking for. Let's finally consider the, the remedy for wealth. Look at verses 18 to 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The point is very simple. Wealth in and of itself cannot bring peace enjoyment and contentment. Only God can do that. Riches are not wrong, says Solomon. They can be enjoyed and used for the benefit uh, of the individual, but only in God. To be valued above possessions and wealth is contentment and joy, and only God can, can bring that. People find no enjoyment in wealth because they make money their God. And the place that should be occupied by God is occupied by wealth. You see, right at the center of our hearts, we have a throne. And it's a, it's a God-shaped throne. And, and the God who created us created that throne for himself to be occupied by himself. But our sin has separated from us from God. Our fellowship, our communion, our relationship has been broken, and that throne is empty. And so what the natural man tries to do, he tries to put other things on that throne. He, he puts idols on that throne. That's what John Calvin said. He said that the, the, the human heart is an idol factory. It's always creating idols to fill that throne. And one of the, the most common idols that man uh, creates and makes is wealth. And that's why Paul calls greed idolatry in Ephesians. But that, those idols, that, that wealth doesn't just quite fit because that throne was designed by God. It was made by God to fit God. And when we put those other things on the throne, there's disappointment and frustration in our hearts because those things don't quite fit. They don't quite fill our hearts, and they leave us restless, frustrated, and empty. 
But when the Lord of glory comes to take up residence in our hearts and occupy his throne, then that's when contentment and joy comes. Do you remember that? what I believe to be the greatest uninspired statement ever written in the world, the first answer to the first question of the Shorter uh, Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him, and to enjoy Him forever. God made you that way to enjoy a relationship with Him, to find fulfillment in Him, to find satisfaction in Him. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You may be rich, you may be poor, but poverty and riches don't provide the answers. Contentment is to be found, joy is to be found in God alone. Paul says that in the New Testament, doesn't he? Godliness with contentment is great gain. To be happy and content in God is where true fulfillment lies. And it can only be found in God through Jesus Christ. Are you content in spite of your wealth and your riches and all the accumulated things that you have gathered around you? Are you content? How can you be content when anything else is sitting on the throne other than uh, God who designed that throne for himself? You know those wonderful words in Philippians uh, chapter uh, 4 where Paul uh, is thanking the Philippians for the gift that he has received. And uh, he says in Philippians 4, I'm not saying this because I... uh, Uh, I'm in need. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. I've learned the secret of being content. We say, "Well, well, Paul, what's your secret? Tell us your secret. Let us into that secret. We all want that peace. We all want that contentment. What is the secret of your contentment? Here's the secret, he says. I'll tell you what the secret is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a a, a promise for every situation that we face in life, that that he will give us supernatural and superhuman abilities uh, to do what is impossible. No, Paul is saying, look, when, when... when I'm well-fed or hungry, when circumstances are militating against me or prospering me, this continuity uh, stream runs all the way through, which is contentment, because I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And until you have Christ in your life, until Christ occupies that throne in your life, you will never know true joy and lasting contentment. In the third part of Shakespeare's Henry VI, you find the king wandering in the countryside unknown, and he meets two gamekeepers, and he tells them that he's a king. And one of them says, 
But if thou be a king, where is thy crown? And the king gives this great answer. My crown is in my heart, not on my head, not decked with diamonds and Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content. A crown it is that seldom kings enjoy. A crown it is that seldom kings enjoy. My crown is content. Are you contented this morning? You can only find perfect contentment and peace in Jesus Christ. When sin is dealt with, when sin is removed, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that's when you find enjoyment and peace and joy in the everyday things of life. Amen.